So Ryan and I met last year uh, on Twitter. He started following my account for some reason or another. He was nice enough to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, around the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. And, you know, I had gone to one of his rallies. He had asked me to ask Bernie Sanders one of the questions. Bernie Sanders wasn't taking questions. And so, um, you know, I decided to go ahead and leave. But he and I kept in contact throughout uh, last year and up to this year. And this year he was nice enough to help me out when I was going through a sort of a, a homelessness crisis of my own. Really, I've been dying to get him on the podcast for a while now. And so he actually finally had some time to sit down and talk. We talked about really everything from Jesse Waters to Aaron Coleman to Jamal Bauman and the DSA and the BDS movement to his very interesting history with the left and sort of his journey from young adulthood to childhood to getting on into his career and him sort of finding himself in his work. And so I think it's really cool that, you know, this guy has gotten to the way top of the journalistic profession, for sure, but also a major part of the DC media sphere. And no one's ever sat down and just asked the guy, you know, how'd you get here? When'd you get here? You know, uh, you know what, what things are you interested in? You know, who are you? And so I thought, you know, this is the sort of work that I like to do. I like to talk to people who other people don't talk to. I like to talk to people who have interesting opinions and on top of that, who usually don't get asked questions about who they are. They're usually the people asking the questions or setting things up. And I always like that sort of behind the scenes work um, on asking the interesting questions to the people who I think are at least most interesting. So if you find it interesting, please be sure to hit the subscribe button down there. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or share out chefboyarmando.com page link for this podcast, go ahead and go over there and go follow Ryan. And if you can, please make a donation to me down in uh, in the description there. Venmo, PayPal, Cash App, any of those would be great uh, going on a fundraiser for the end of the year. I really do appreciate you guys. It's you are a member of the dark side. You worked. At, That's right. You were on the Death Star itself. So when were you on Wall Street? To figure out the exact time, I'll, I'll run you through how I got there. So I graduated college, went to St. Mary's College of Maryland. I grew up on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, went to St. Mary's College of Maryland, uh, public school down in Southern Maryland, graduated there in the spring of 2000. And I grew up poor enough, like one of the, you know, poor as hell in, uh, in Maryland and enough so that like went completely free, like, which is how college ought to be. In fact, I got you know, so much financial aid, not merit-based, need-based. Need I didn't deserve it because so I did terribly in high school. Deserve. I didn't have good grades, right, let me put you. it that way. Yeah, I got you. I think everybody deserves to go for free. So I was, by the end of the school year, I'd have like $1,000 extra from money that they would give for housing and everything else, crazy. So by the end of it, spring of 2000, I, I opened up an Ameritrade account with the small amount of money that I had saved. And because throughout the 90s, everybody's getting rich off of like pets.com and yep. like that's how Clinton had such a successful second half of his term, this tech bubble. I realized later when I started studying things that I opened up my Ameritrade account on the very day at the peak of the bubble. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So that's like awesome. My, so like my four grand that I had put away. Just, see ya. So in any event, so after I graduate, that summer I moved to New York, uh, moved in with my girlfriend, now wife. Um, 
New York City. First job I got was through a temp agency uh, answering phones at like some publishing company. I lasted about six weeks, that, was about six weeks there. And I was told that like, if my performance didn't improve, like they were going to get a new temp. I um, love the fact that like everybody else who's successful is all was also, a, well, I want to say a total loser, but also uh, the same as yes, me, like yes. struggled through life. Awesome. Well, my, the thing I learned there was how the world works. Like my first day of work, like a big boss comes into the room and like yells at my immediate boss for something that she had done wrong. And she was like, oh, that was Ryan. I'm sorry. It, he's, it won't happen again. This is my first day. So like, it wasn't me. <laughs> like I wasn't there last week. And the woman walks out. I'm like, I wasn't here last week. She's like, it's, don't worry about it. It's fine. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. So like, this is how it is. Like everybody at yeah, the bottom you're... is just going to get blamed for everything. Okay, cool. So you can imagine how motivated I was to perform for that job. And so I was in the elevator uh, leaving work one day. I had like a week left in my two weeks to improve my performance. And this, and this guy, he's wearing a, a Maryland ter Terrapins. It's like, like a Terps hat. I'm like, hey, I'm from Maryland too. And you know, we we're talking a little bit. He says that he's a stockbroker and... I'm like, oh, I, I messed around in the stock market. I like traded some stocks and I lost everything I had. He's like, that, that's awesome. You should come work for us. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, yeah, but I lost everything. He's like, yeah, but you know, it's all luck anyway. It's like um, a scene out of Mad Men. It was wild. And he, so he, he's like, here's my card. Um, you should you know, come, come check it out if you want. Now, throughout college, I was involved in like the anti-globalization. This was the time of the anti-globalization movement. Seattle WTO protests. The April April two thousand was the World Bank IMF in in Washington D.C. This was like a precursor to Occupy in a in a way. Two thousand, I was you know, volunteered a bunch for Nader, so I was like thought de Democrats were like the most like I sold T-shirts at a Madison Square Garden rally in uh, two thousand. So like I was already like a left wing minded person, but when you're working class, yeah. you don't really, you don't, to me, I didn't really conceive of like the possibility that there was some like professional career in being like a left winger. It wasn't like I rejected that. It just it didn't occur to me that you could like take your political values and like live like a professional life that way that you would do some type of work so that you could survive. And then you would do your activism you know, in, in the time that you had. And so when this guy's like, you know, th and this, this point, I'm like a Leninist, you know, cause you, you know, you always move like most people like move <laughs> this direction throughout their lives. So he, you got to tell me how you came to Leninism here. Soon. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I can, we can get to that. Yeah. Um, more like more Maoism actually. Uh, <laughs> you and Lee Carter definitely get along. Yeah. Cause I had a, uh, <laughs> this professor who became a very good friend of mine who was basically an unreconstructed Maoist. He, he died a couple years ago. His most recent book is called Against Individualism. His name's Henry Rosemont. It's, it's called A Confucian Rethinking of the Foundations of Morality, Politics, Family, and Religion. It's like an academic book. So if you had to buy this, it would cost like $150. I've been, I've been thinking about trying to like write a digestible version of it. But in any event, it was, it was really his influence. And he was a protege of Chomsky. 
uh, and, a, and a good friend of Chomsky. Everyone's and so favorite. my spring of my senior year, I, I took a course that was called Chomsky. It was all just reading Chomsky's writings. That spring, we went up to uh, MIT and got to meet him, like sat around conference table and got to spend like a couple hours like arguing with Chomsky. And so, which, so that was that was extremely exciting. Uh, so and in any event, he he's like, here's here's the you know, here's my card. And I was like, this would be an amazing way to learn the way the financial system works. And it, the, the money was not much. It was $300 a week plus $100 for every account you could open. But what really sold it to me, well, A, that was more than I was making probably at the temp, at the temp gig. If you could, we had a rent controlled place, like New York was different in 2000, 1999, 2000. You could survive on, on that. Before um, Bloomberg. Right, yes. And so the other thing that appealed to me about it was that three days a week, I would just take, take a course like that the firm offered on how to pass the series seven and the series 63, which are the two licensing exams. I can like just go back to college and like get paid for it. That sounds great. And I did, I, and I got licensed. I, and uh, my license might still be on file at the wall street somewhere. I realized after I got there, this is basically pre-internet. And it's not, I didn't research the place. The place had recently been involved in the biggest arrest in like American history, like in the number of people. Uh, it was a bit player in it, but it, it had been and had been was like, it was unclear if it was still past tense or not, mob connected and was like basically doing what's called pump and dump. You take a tiny stock, you call a bunch of people, sell it, pump the price up, all the, all the people that are in on the scam, dump it, and then the price crashes. And so they were, all, they were all arrested. So when I was there, there was somebody from the SEC who like was constantly walking around. But that guy seemed to be on the take because they only had something like 11 licenses and they had like 70 brokers, but the brokers would use other people's names. The math ain't math ain't. Yeah. And so the first, the first article I ever wrote was like an expose of this place. And the guy who taught the class uh, was the one guy who like I could talk to about like what was going on and that sort of thing. And he was like, they're going to kill you. Like, he's like, are you, like, do you understand? Like, I just want you to understand, like these, these, like the people who like the, these, the partners at this firm are not going to kill you, but the, their friends, like the ones that they're working for are going to kill you. And I was like, well, what if I tweak the name of the firm? Because I wasn't trying to like, you know, shut this one little tiny firm down. Cause like, who gives a shit? It was like 70 working class Long Island people, like defrauding old people, like around the country. Like that shouldn't, they shouldn't do that. But like taking them down is not systemic change. I was like, I just want to like, it's like, I want to write a piece about like this system. And he's like, if you, if you change the name, then there's a chance that they won't kill you. But he's like, I wouldn't guarantee it. And I still would absolutely not do it because your name is on it. They know that you work for them and they know you don't work for them now. And they know that you're like out there talking about what they do and, and know a lot of what they do. They did not kill me. And I wrote, I wrote the piece and I changed their name from the name of the firm was Royal Hutton Securities. And I changed it to Royal Stanley Securities. I think I, I went, think I went from Royal Hutton to Royal Stanley. It's in the, it, it's in the piece. It's, 
I wrote it for the Brooklyn Rail. Very sly of you. I'm sure they um, know yeah, that, that nobody could ever figure out. <laughs> I mean, because the other problem, and then the guy pointed this out, he's like, you can change the name, but like, you're a licensed broker. Like your broker is on file. Your license is on file. So like if anybody wanted to figure out what firm you were working for, all they have to do is run your name in the system. So like changing, and you know, I was like 22. So I was like, fuck it. Same. That's why I jumped in a car. Right. I was like, literally, fuck this noise. First. Yeah. So that's how I wound up um, on Wall Street and then went back home, spent some time working in the middle school that I went to, became a pot lobbyist, and then became a journalist. Interesting. I'm yeah. Sure. And, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm really glad for the time on Wall Street because it has, it really helped my Wall Street reporting, particularly around the financial crisis. Like people couldn't BS me because I knew what all these terms were. I knew how this stuff worked. And also we, we were supposed to make in the two days in between the classes, we were supposed to make a thousand phone calls a day. I don't know if anybody hit that number, they weren't being counted, but like that was the goal. Like a, dial the phone a thousand times, connect with a hundred people, get into 10 conversations throughout the day. And out of that 10, they would hope you would open one account practice of having to call a thousand people a day and get rejected you know constantly was great for journalism great for you your dating to, life i tell you right there you go but it, so yeah journalism you've got to be able to like get get a lot of rejection and make a make an enormous number of calls until you get the one that's like every journalist should no shouldn't work for a chop shop necessarily that's like mobbed up but should do telemarketing like it's a good humbling and uh and, and and a good training experience. we do not ryan Grimm does not endorse working for the mob it's not <laughs> a good idea kids don't do it unless you don't have a choice make your own you gotta make your own calls yeah same I, you know it's interesting is but i think it's interesting i always made um ever since i was a kid i was i, I was more chomsky than i was mal or lenin um much more anarcho-syndicalist i think it was more because well, that's what's that's what's interesting is that i think and so henry henry rosemont obviously because he he was such good friends with Chomsky. Like they were tight in the sixties doing anti-war stuff together. Back, to, actually, back when Chomsky was not popular in the sixties. No, he wasn't. And he almost went to prison for like being associated with some bombings like that. He it's a, it's complicated, but like, <laughs> he was not as, as pacifist now. I saw a tweet the other day. They said, what is Greta Thunberg going to start blowing up pipelines? <laughs> Yikes could happen so i th and i think while henry was was a maoist so he, and he he so he's one of the world's leading but was one of the world's leading confucian scholars and he taught in china like he would teach in china for a couple of years then u.s china u.s you know back and forth and so he respected the nuances of the chinese system and didn't didn't see it as just blanketly authoritarian i'd be curious what he thought of she and what's what's happened you know since he because he's he passed away four four years ago but anyway uh that's beside the point no 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 that's not beside the point it's that's interesting stuff i mean if, right. yeah because everyone kind of forgets that part about chomsky's history because i i mean because back in the day youtube used to be cool before it became the corporate hellscape that it is now mm -hmm. 
And so basically you could upload almost anything. And what I would do when I was a teenager is just when I had a computer, I would just sit and listen. I would just sort of sit and listen while playing video games to Noam Chomsky and just sort of listen to him go on and on and on for hours and hours because you know that guy could talk. Right. <laughs> and he always has a great icebreaker at the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. And so just listen to him talk and sort of that, I guess... I was raised in a very religious household and my father was a very terrible person. He is a terrible person. That's kind of awful. I guess sort of my need for a sort of anarchism against authority would have been that situation. Mm -hmm. But also just in general, as Chomsky puts it, unjustified centers of authority are the cause of most suffering in the world. So I think mm -hmm. that's, I think that's a big part of my politics. And also because just like everyone else's politics, I'm right. Right. There you go. Um, yeah. So... So yeah, so I mean, Lenin, right? That's interesting. People are on, on the left, they always start with like Lenin or Mao or Stalin. It's interesting, especially with well, Chomsky, like, he yeah, never I... had any respect for them. Well, not necessarily no respect, but he just, he didn't have reverence for them. He was always just like, we're here to make positive change in the world. Right. Yeah, and I think Lenin was, Lenin was, a, he's, a, he's approachable in the way that he writes. He's like, would have been a great blogger or like a great poster. Lenin the shit poster yeah. total shit poster uh just raging just wouldn't be able to like turn down a slight yeah everybody be like vlad log off log off man i've had to tell myself that recently as i've become like more notable i'm like when in doubt log out just yeah oh don't post it yeah <laughs> yes but you have to also the context you know in 89 the you know the berlin wall comes down 91 uh, Soviet Union collapses. So as a like political identity, socialists and communists were kind of discredited even among college lefties. Like that's why there were so many anarchists. Not why I would, I would I considered myself one. Everybody did. It was the end of history. I mean, Madeleine Albright, right? right. It was, I mean, we, we had won. We solved all our problems. But there was still some, in, it was still interesting to go back and read those early revolutionaries to see like, was there something that, was seeded there that if it had grown in a different different way could have flowered into something that other than what it became because you're you know always hopeful of that because you don't want otherwise what are you doing it's interesting i always found lenin and uh and even mao very interesting in the case of the soviet union we're always propagandized those were the worst places in the world right tens of millions hundreds of millions of people died and all the rest of that in the case of china that very well may have been true they had the population for for about 100 million people die i think most estimates are like 70 to 80 but point remains a lot of people died and when you actually read why it was the case, it wasn't like due to these massive like changes overnight. It was just due to these insane, like almost Monty Python style quotas for production mm -hmm. increases and things like, you know, different oils, not quite whale oil, but almost like palm tree oil, you know, it just resources. Right. And, it, and if you didn't report back those numbers or something higher, you know, mm -hmm. you'd be shot, you know, tortured or excommunicated. Right. Right. And if you do, if you're a centrally planned economy and you make an error in your planning, like millions can die. Yeah. And like the great leap forward was, that's probably what it was. It was like a, basically a, like a planning error combined with an authoritarian system that, that encouraged, like you just said, like encouraged the local official to lie to the regional official, the regional official to lie to the bigger official and then the bigger official to lie back to the central committee and everybody's just lying. And so then the central committee is trying to plan its economic policy based on lies. 
And so, of course, how are you going to get it right? You're only going to get it right by sheer luck at that point. And they didn't. And so tens of millions died, you know, starved. Exactly. And the thing is, it was due to sheer incompetence. My words, not Ryan's. A psychopath at the head of the Chinese government who was just who. I mean, when you have that sort of power, centralized power, mm-hmm. it, it, it sort of, in its nature, drives you towards a sort of... Um, I guess you could say a sort a sort of paranoia because you have to have power because right you and you also power. are surrounded and set on all sides by bourgeois class and like the and the like capitalist nations and like so, you know you're you're both paranoid and you're right which is yeah. uh, which is a great system to reinforce just right. fan- <laughs> fantastic study for, I studied psychology for five years before I dropped out of school. Paranoia is a great way to encourage honesty, right. rational and clear thought, things that you'd want in a leader. I mean, I'll grab a hole of mouth. Interesting. I also saw on Twitter, it's not guns, but you're talking about guns, right? So I'm not going to be popular <laughs> if I ever decide to run for office, which will probably not happen until like 2026, 2028. Always found guns very dangerous. I've always found they never really solved any problems. Like, you know, guns and political power, I guess you could say, or just sort of guns and democracy, a small d democracy. How do you square that circle? I think you have to square it by making sure that in all cases, democracy comes first. And we have a piece actually on the Rittenhouse verdict that we just posted by George Cheedy, correspondent of ours, who makes a, a point that I agree with, which is that the ballot and democracy and the First Amendment, you know, have to come first. There's a reason that they're first. Freedom of religion, freedom of press, freedom to assembly, redress grievances. Freedom to peaceably assemble is obliterated if you can have people just come up and menace peace, peaceful. For now, yet you have an obligation to remain peaceful in that case because that's in the that's in the First Amendment, peaceably protest. But if you are surrounded by armed people and all the armed person has to do is convince a jury that they felt afraid then you're you're going to really like like i said obliterate the right to peaceably assemble and the the rittenhouse verdict is wild in a way in, in the sense that if if rittenhouse and there's you know we have video of everything which is unusual but like if and he still and he still got off, which is right. just incredible. But I think I think he got off because there was video, because and because it was the jury could say like, okay, in this moment. But so here, here's the hypothetical: if unambiguously the first person Rittenhouse shot, he could, he had no self defense claim for right. So then now he's running down the street and people are attacking him and he shoots them after they attack him. He's guilty of killing them too, because at that point, like he's an active shooter. He's a, and the people who were coming at him, gross quits, the dude, nobody has identified yet, Alex Huberman, they were heroically trying to disarm and save lives by coming at a person that they thought was like kind of a mass shooter, an active shooter or something like that. Turned out according to the jury, they were wrong that he, that, but now, but if so, you can't have a situation where in whether or not you're allowed to shoot somebody depends on things that people can't even know. Like, so, so George Sheedy's article just says, like, look, 
we need like a federal law that says you have a right to peaceably assemble. And that means people cannot just come up and menace you with firearms. Like you just can't do it. Um, and this, the second amendment has been restricted in the past. You can't just walk into any movie theater you want carrying a weapon. And so it's completely reasonable that you shouldn't be able to walk up to a first amendment protected peaceful assembly and that's one i mean look i mean it's the same thing right talking to sinha about this and i said this a few years ago you cannot have a situation where basically any and all it's sort of a vestige of colonialism where by like a, a, a flick of your wrist a word of mouth a nod of the head you can just slaughter your political opposition like at a certain point after right, centuries, we can't have that right i mean at, at a certain point after centuries decades of allowing that to happen, you don't have any more reasonable outcomes. There are no more reasonable people. They're all dead. The issues of that society, the, the intensity with which that those gears are grinding, it just they just stop moving. Mm -hmm. And so if they just stop moving, like the society basically, I don't know if you've seen Chicken Run, but essentially it's like it's you've never seen that movie. Oh my, you have kids, you've never seen Chicken Run. <laughs> when, when did Chicken Run come out? Um, early 2000s. But it's basically like a crock pot pressure cooker. You just get to a point where it's about to pop mm -hmm. and you can't allow a society to get to a point where it just can't solve any of its own problems, right? I mean, capitalism can't solve its own problems, right? Sort of right. the point of Marx. But, right. you know, you, you can't allow people to, and it's again, to your point of, it's why I think out of Sam Sachs and you, I think you're right in this. Though I do appreciate the work Sam Sachs does. Mm -hmm. um, it's very important, but it, you cannot allow people to live in their own reality especially when you right. have guns around because when you allow people to create this sort of this world where everyone is a threat i mean the, I, I said this about gosar look if i if i was aoc and i was her height her weight and i gone through january 6th i'd be scared as fuck too but at the same time especially she's a woman of color i can only imagine how many death threats she gets and all the rest of the all the rest of the squad right but my problem with that was not like oh he's coming after joe biden and whatnot do i think joe Biden's gonna get shot no probably not um but like no probably not but the problem is is like all of the blood and whatnot and the main focus of that were immigrants and brown people i just maybe it's just me and where i grew up i don't understand why we're supposed to be afraid of immigrants i just i legitimately don't get it right it's not a visceral thing in my head my emotions you know my politics I just, I, I mean, maybe something wrong with me. I just, I genuinely don't understand why we're supposed to be afraid of brown people. And that is where that video was aiming. Like, if you actually watch it, it looks like mm -hmm. there's, they just want to like carpet bomb those line of immigrants. That's what that was. That do. was his defense of it on the house floor. He was like, I wasn't trying to really personally yep. threaten her. I was just joking about that. The real point of the video was. He said it. Yeah. <laughs> like that's that's creepy man that like that's your that that's your defense i mean creepy is to i mean like it is i mean you look ryan has to be careful what he says but i mean i in my own opinion no i think that's some i think it's some psychopathic shit i think that's like some i, I think that's i mean that's fucked up i mean yeah. you can't you can't just go out there and be like oh hey let's just murder brown people i mean it's the same thing with hawthorne yeah. now talking about oh like now it's time to be up in arms with guns and like be armed and dangerous like this is a signal this trial is a signal to white supremacy in the country that yeah. we are on the march. Like we are winning because it's talk with Sinha about it. White supremacy is often not just about black people or brown people. It is about enforcing. I mean, it's the entire point of sort of the Calhoun project is 
cut off white democracy because right. it, slavery, white supremacy can't be maintained. It just can't be maintained right. under. Right. So further to my point, the reason why I tweeted out, I want to know what Ben Shapiro thinks because Ben Shapiro is Jewish. And this guy is going to get up. I mean, we all know how much white supremacists hate Jewish people. No matter how much yeah. alike they look, there again, it's this project of whiteness. The Irish weren't white. The Italians weren't white. The Slavs weren't white. The Irish weren't white. You name it. This ever sort of othering of other people that kind of gets us to where we are. But yeah, I, th I think that sort of let me stay in my own world kind of mentality is what leads us to something like a written house where like literally you can just walk up to people and shoot them and you walk away. I mean, me personally, I don't, I do not understand how isn't it unlawful possession of a firearm in the commission of a felon? Like, like you cross state lines. Is this state court that they were trying this under? Mm -hmm. How is this not a federal issue? He crossed state lines in order to commit a felony. Like, I don't like, how is maybe, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think theoretically they could still make it a federal case. If we're going to allow people to show up at these raucous demonstrations armed and then allow them to kill people if somebody tries to disarm them, we're going to have a lot of people get killed. And, license and, in for each, mass and in each single case, you could be like, well, the jury, a jury will be like, well, person was trying to take their gun. So you never know what they're going to do with the gun if they take the gun. But if you never know what the person's going to do if they take your gun, how is the other person supposed to know what you're going to do with the gun that you already have? The Hobbesian trap is what it is. Yeah, everybody can just shoot each other legally. Like, but, but that's, oh, but, you look, the Second Amendment was created literally in order to expand the state, in order to, and by state, I mean states as well, capital S and also lowercase mm -hmm. s. It's meant to go about a, sort of expanding out when it comes to colonialism to, tar to take the land of Native Americans and to slaughter them because they're not going to be a part of our project, right? Right. They're just in our way. They're, they're, they're on our land. They don't know that they're on our land, but that's ours. Right. And beyond that, keeping slaves but this idea that all this stuff is sort of individual is really wild that somehow that individuals do not have that somehow individuals have the right to own weapons handguns in particular under any circumstance and therefore it sort of expands to other weapons it's just right. sort of wild to me the entire second amendment you literally write for the intercept and write these articles for 15 20 years every day it's it's not like there's a semicolon it's like comma, 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 which could be interpreted whole numbers of ways. But the idea that certain parts of it only apply in certain cases, like you gotta, I mean, I mean come on, it's gotta be coherent here. Um, right, right. And, a, and a lot of people know the well-regulated militia part, but the part that you alluded to, I just uh, Googled it, so I'll get it exactly right, is also key. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Capital so you're right. S. Like the, the point was these, these states did not want to be overrun by neighboring states. Vermont and New York, like Vermont did not become a state for a while because New York was occupying it. Like there was like a shooting war, a little guerrilla war going on between New York and Vermont over who controlled Vermont. Like New York was like, there is no Vermont. Like that, that's all us. And actually Alexander Hamilton like helped broker it and was like, 
and said like, New York, like stop. Like occupying Vermont is like occupying Afghanistan. Like it's just mountains and like rugged people and like nothing there. Like you're gonna be occupying them for decades. Like just let them be a state. And so Vermont was not the only state, small state that was looking at across its border. You know, like Delaware didn't want Maryland to look over and be like, well, that's a pretty small little state. Why don't we, why don't we just make it part of ours? Let's, so let's annex. Let's right, annex Delaware. Yeah. And so the great state of affairs under the Constitution. Yeah. Well, and this is this is under the Articles. This is under the Constitution. The Constitution. It's, like it's mind-bending, dude. Vermont and Vermont was not like one of the thirteen colonies because of this ongoing war. Vermont became the 14th U.S. state in 1791. So that's why it's all 13. Everybody understands there to be 13 colonies. Right. There were actually 14, if you ask a Vermonter. But, like, they just right. weren't being respected. Right, right. By, by New York. I'm sure Senator Sanders is furious right now. He's writing out an op-ed. Yeah, and, and they didn't join the Articles of Confederation. Like, they were an independent republic of Vermont from in the period between the revolutionary war and the and then the the u.s i mean did they this is all new to me this is really cool did they like negotiate with the crown within britain i mean because they still controlled canada at that point. well they were free i mean they were free of british control but they just they were like we're our own we're our own state just gonna kick it up yeah, in okay just kicking it in these green mountains you're <laughs> right oh, okay yeah. whatever dude yeah i mean they were like it's kind of like vatican uh, city although their their population exploded in the 1770s which actually contributed to the u.s winning the uh revolutionary war because all the you all had all these 20 year olds ready to fight because the thing is when i think about and, and i was just discussing with brad haywood earlier just something about that 14 to 25 year old range for men it's just let me go kill something or let me go fight something. I don't, it's just something about it. You know, when you mentioned New York and, uh, and the Constitution Revolutionary War, I immediately think about the, uh, the total Farmers' Rebellion. Total population of Vermont in 1790 was 85,000. But that's wild to me. I mean, whenever you mention that, I think of Washington and, and New York. George Washington having to go up to New York and essentially put down a Farmers' Rebellion because they're deeply indebted and they... Hamilton led that one too, yeah. By Hamilton, you mean let it actually was like within war or? Alexander Hamilton was like the the colonel who, I mean, he was treasury secretary at the time, the Whiskey Rebellion. He was the one who organized the troops. They, and basically by the time like the troops got up there, they, they had given up. Because a lot of people conceive of these 13 colonies as sort of one nation, right? The Articles of Confederation, even the Constitution is just sort of this, I don't want to say a marriage, but sort of like a melding of the states um, yes, and they fact, were essentially almost different countries the the grammar changed after the civil war before the civil war people would say are the united states are a great country you know the united states are the birthplace of freedom so states would be kind of a plural and then after the civil war when the union won they like consciously changed the grammar to the united states is and so it was after the Civil War that and the nation started thinking of itself as a singular object rather than what you're talking about, this loose collection of, of states who, right, then need their own militias. 
Right. I mean, which is, I mean, Professor Senhal and I were talking about that, that essentially, especially South Carolina and Virginia were just these two power centers that just were vociferously after each other because Virginia was after essentially, hate to say the word, but breeding slaves. And then South Carolina was much more along the lines of let's import these slaves. Let's make money off of their importation. Because right, which is why people, which is why the Virginia politicians were, you know, pushed to shut down importation. And they won. Any, right. And not for any, like, altruistic abolitionist spirit. Has everything it was, to do with it was to control their, right, exactly. It was to do what monopolies do now, try to just get more advantage by, right. by, like, by using the state to regulate their competition. And thing is, people often say that, you know, the slave trade itself was shut down. That is not entirely true. The Atlantic slave trade, the African slave trade was shut down. The Caribbean slave trade and the interstate slave trade. So, like, if you were to, like, let's say a slave were to, like, hit Barbados, okay? Technically, you can't buy an African slave. However, if it's a Barbados slave, of course you can buy them. So, you can just go ahead and ship them back. So, it's, it's more of a, it pisses South Carolina off, <laughs> for sure. But at the same time, this sort of fight within Virginia, because Virginia is like the, the mother of the first, you know, five, six, seven presidents. Most of them are from Virginia. Yeah. And so they sort of were able to wield it, wield that power and win that war. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, shooting the shit on history. That's cool. That's very cool. So you grew up relatively poor. I, I didn't know your dad was still around. I haven't looked into who your dad was, but I saw, I saw you like hit one of his posts on Twitter. Your mom, your dad, if, yeah. what did they do? Who, you know, kind of who were they? Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, so my, my parents, I was born in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and my parents split up when I was very young. They eventually divorced when I was five, but they'd split up a little bit before that. And so my mother raised my brother and I, you know, with in, in joint custody with, with my dad. My dad was a school psychologist in the Allentown school district. And my mother moved to the Eastern shore where she did a whole collection of low-wage jobs, worked in a nursing home, worked in a like a mental health rehab type place, worked in an adult daycare center for a while, um, and then eventually went on disability. If you work for the Allentown School District in the 70s, 80s, 90s, like that's that's a solid middle class life. So I did on you know every other weekend and, and during the summer experienced what it was like to live in a middle class America. And like what I learned later was like the epitome of America, Allentown. So anyway, so yeah, that's America. Yeah, it's like Allentown is like this stand-in for, it's like Peoria. It's like where where Obama like would go like when he wanted to like be seen. With. It's where Bernie went when he like did his Fox Town Hall. He went to Bethlehem, which is the town where it's part of basically Allentown, Bethlehem and Easton are the Lehigh Valley. Yeah. Um, it's like I mean, a stand, it's like a stand in for like the 1950s, like white working class America. Yeah. I mean, that sort of pipe dream that we're still <laughs> the copium that we're still like, trying right, to down can, like to the this dream, day. The dream that you can do manual work that you take pride in and, and live a comfortable life and retire, retire when you need to and live a com have a comfortable retirement. And yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So that's, that's an interesting background. Like I said, I was working as a pot lobbyist for the marijuana policy project. Very long story, but like every other job I'd had before that pretty much, I got fired. And I 
I had been doing some freelance writing in for, for the past, I guess at this point it had been two or three years, writing a, writing a piece every five months or so and um, really enjoyed it. Like, and was trying to do that in my spare time and trying to do it at work. Uh, like it was, it was clear, it was the thing I really liked. And I emailed a friend of mine and told him, I was like, dude, I just got fired. And he was like, yo, I am in Bolivia right now. It's like, and there's going to be an uprising like next week. And I'm in the Chapari. This is like the jungle part, interviewing a bunch of coca growers. And it's like, because he, and he, he's like, he was on assignment with the nation. He's like, if you get down to Bolivia, like you can, you can use my translator, use my driver, and we'll just ride around together, ride around Bolivia. And then you can try to freelance stories. Like, just try to make it. And he was like, just, just try it. Like, like you, you enjoy writing, like you enjoy reporting, try to make a run at it. And I had a, uh, a friend in from college who was Bolivian. I looked her up and she was like in La Paz. I'm like, can I crash at your place? She's like, yeah, come on. So like I had every, all I needed to do was get a plane ticket. Um, and so I got the plane ticket and went down. He was right, there was an uprising. Like we, we wound up on an airplane with Abel Morales. I, was, I like got to talk to him a little bit, very brief interview. Saw him again at a rally at a march in La Paz. They like, the protesters shut the city down. Pretty fierce, like back and forth. But Bolivia has a has a very strong culture of not killing each other. Like in, in a, a, other South American countries, that's not the case. So there's a lot of like rubber bullets and tear gas and dynamite and like, but dynamite, but just dynamite caps, like not actual, like doesn't have the actual blasting material inside the dynamite. It feels very violent, but you're probably not gonna get killed. And I think only like a few people died in this, in this, in this clash. And I was able to write, you know, hey, because there was no, there were no other, other Americans down there. So I was able to like freelance a bunch of pieces. And then I was able to get unemployment. And so I could use my unemployment while I continued to try to make it freelancing uh, and eventually got a, an internship at the Washington City Paper. It's like the local all weekly, the DC, like all weekly. That actually paid, it paid you minimum wage, but then also paid you for every article you published. Uh, and I wrote like more cover stories than, cause I was at this point, I'm like a grown person. I'm like 28, 29 years old interning. So I like wrote an insane number of cover stories because you got paid like 1500 bucks for every cover story. Right. Um, Golden age of reporting, man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so in, in Bolivia, came back from there, uh, Evo Morales took, pow took, well, took power uh, in, in the upcoming election. The protest successfully did depose the president. I was on unemployment since I'd been canned from my job. And so that was that 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 plus freelancing was enough to make rent for about six months. And then I got a, this internship, this really cool, well, interestingly designed internship with the city paper, which is like the village voice of DC, like the all weekly of DC, which that paid minimum wage. I remember minimum, the minimum wage went up in DC in the middle of my internship and I got a raise, which was quite cool. Well, that was the second time in my life that the, the I got a raise because the minimum wage went up. 
uh, first time I've been in college. It, it was 4.25 an hour when I started. <laughs> now it's what, 7.25, uh, which is like insane because 4.25 in the 90s is more than 7.25 today. Much more. Um, yeah, it's been like, it's been 12, we're going on 13 years. I budge, yeah, a long time. DC, it, it, it was, it's higher. Um, I wonder why. The way it was designed was you get a freelance fee for every piece you wrote uh, on top of your minimum wage. And so it really pushed me to write like a man possessed. Because at this point, I'm like a grown person, like late 20s with like expenses rather right. than, you know, a 21 year old, you know, couch surfing. Right. Um, I wish I was so, 21 couch surfing. Yeah. yeah. There you go. I wish. Uh, no, I, I mean, I wish I, I wish I still was. Uh, right. I'm, I'm now 24, so I'm in no man's land, apparently. Yeah, right in the middle there. And so I did that for like a year-ish and um, went, went to work for this, got a job at this, it was going to be a brand, it was going to be a new Capitol Hill newspaper and it was going to be called the Capitol Leader. Uh, but after I got hired there, they shut that down and hired couple people from the Washington Post and renamed it uh, Politico. It's actually the Politico first. Um, mm -hmm. And everybody who had been hired for the original outlet was, was allowed to basically try out for jobs at the new place. And so I survived. Only in the United States could you pull yeah. off some shit like that <laughs> without setting up a games. riot in the city. Yeah. No, yeah, it was a total Hunger Games thing. And for me, it worked out well because I, I didn't have the qualifications on paper to have gotten a job there at Politico because once it became Politico, it was, it was harder to get in, get in the door. Right. But since I was already in the door, you know, it was that rare opportunity where you're like, you feel like even though on paper, you're not qualified and you don't have the right connections, that if they give you a chance, you could prove that you could do it. But of course that never happens, except in this bizarre situation right. where, where I was hired by one thing, it became a different thing. And so I, I was there for about two years and then went to the Huffington Post, which was, which was kind of near its infancy. I was one of the first reporters to go there to work, basically like the second reporter, I'd say, after Sam Stein. And I spent like nine, nine years there or so mm -hmm. and then 2017 went to the intercept that's interesting because yeah. so politico it, at the time was it the same conservative rag <laughs> that it is today i mean it was it wasn't driven by any like fealty to conservative ideology but it, it had the the kind of clickbait metabolism out of the yeah. gate right that that can drift into 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 uh, helping helping write, uh, but but no, not not real. It wasn't like it wasn't like sympathetic to Republicans or like hostile to progressives more than any other outlet. Like all outlets at that time were basically hostile to progressives. Like felt like progressives were losers and right. I mean it, that's it didn't belong in Washington basically. That's sort of actually where I became familiar with your work was a 
little kid maybe i was maybe a little kid jesus i was maybe like 13 or 14 um and i used to read politico my on the ipad that we had recently gotten wow yeah and so i had politico app and i would like that that was back when it was free so to look at whatever politico had through the Mm -hmm. app and so i would just scroll and look at stuff i remember seeing your name on a few things and then you sort of re-entered my consciousness right around 2017 when you did start moving the intercept glenn greenwald a man who leaves me speechless to this day is uh you know he founded the intercept based off of the nsa leaks that was just monumental for me and my understanding of the world um, at the time but in any case so yeah so at the huffington post you and a team you won some purely surprises is that right the first one that we won that was by this reporter david wood who was in our on our in our dc bureau who took a look at what life was like for veterans coming back from who'd been wounded in iraq and afghanistan looking at their lives like five six seven years later rather than you know, the, the month that they get back and everybody's like, thank you for your service. It's like, well, right. how, how are they doing now? And that was a piece that was a, kind of ahead of its time a little bit in, in identifying the, how, how difficult it was for them. And he, I, and he kind of wrote about, he also wrote about the concept of moral injury. We have physical injuries that are obvious. You have trauma that we are beginning to pretty well understand. Then you also have this moral injury that comes from having done something that you believe is wrong. That like having committed that act creates an injury in you as well um, because your conscience knows that what you did was wrong. And so a lot of these people were, you know, the, the simple term for that is guilt. Um, it's a lot more than that, especially when you have to, the entire point of the military is to, is to, be, uh, is to be hired to kill legally. And so mm-hmm. when you're required to do that, it's, I imagine that's pretty difficult. It's the same reason why, you know, Pentagon can't hire drone pilots. Right. People just can't, they can't do it. Right. Right. Totally. And then later, um, I collaborated with Jason Cherkis on a, that piece did win a Pulitzer, um, on a, on a piece that investigated drug treatment, the drug treatment industry, kind of from an ideological perspective, rather than a, you know, the, the typical investigative report might be like trying to find some drug treatment centers that were like, you know, stealing money from Medicaid or something like that. I read bad, it. But like, yeah. And what we looked at is that the entire model of right. the way that people were, yeah. the way that the industry was approaching. Right. Um, at the time, it was mostly heroin and pills. Right. Fentanyl, fentanyl was just starting to take off. Um, right. Just wasn't working. They were bringing the Alcoholics Anonymous sobriety, you know, one day at a time, read the big book approach to it. Right. They would put the people through these 28 day, what, you know, they call 30 day wonder, 30 day miracle. Yeah. And then they boot them back out and now they have less of a tolerance. And if they relapse, often they would die. This was, I was proud of this piece because it, sh- it did shift. Now fentanyl overwhelmed a lot of the good that was done, but it did shift the industry and shifted policymakers away from this abstinence and toward medication assisted treatment, you know, allowing people to take Suboxone or buprenorphine. And it, we were all, I was also proud of because we, we didn't go into it looking for a particular story. Like we investigated it. Right. And Jason came back and he was like, I felt like here, here's, and he wrote a, wrote a piece and in the piece, a whole bunch of people in Kentucky where he was writing about were dying 
after they were getting out of treatment. Yeah. I was like, this is really weird. Like what right. treatment's not supposed to treatment's supposed to treat you. Dying is the absolute worst outcome. Possible outcome. Right, right. And so we said, is there is this a coincidence or is there some connection between the treatment and people dying? Like in other words, would people have been better off had they not even gone into treatment? And a lot of them would have been. And we did find a connection between treatment and, and people dying. And a lot of it was a lot of it is ideological because the people who yeah. run these things got themselves got so they didn't work for or dead. But some of it is financial too. That like Obamacare allowed uh, created mental health insurance parity, which is a good thing. Yeah. But then it also allowed a lot of these fly by night facilities yeah. to just have a few folding chairs, a big book, some bunk beds, and bill Medicaid, you know, twenty thousand dollars or whatever. So I've seen amount of money for a month with absolutely no interest in whether or not the person recovers or dies. And I read that piece and I, I read it in its entirety and I, Long I piece, yeah, yeah, it is. It's about, it's about 12, 15 pages. It's not yeah. up to like 18. So it's, it's a big one, but no, I mean, it's the same thing. It's the same reason why I'm, I'm skeptical of Medicare for all. I mean, it's, of course we need a national insurance plan. Everyone needs access to a doctor and healthcare and there are all sorts of economic reasons for that uh, just like flat out economic reasons you have warren buffett saying you cannot have a situation where one out of every four dollars in the economy is going towards healthcare. it's just it's not a sustainable right. model but also further just like it, it seems to me it's going to be like basically a big obamacare is what it's going to be because even medicare even now today we're struggling to get medicare to negotiate drug prices and we can't even get kirsten cinema to do that Right. And so, and so once we get Medicare for all, the entire argument that Bernie Sanders was making earlier this year was, you know, we're going to be able to negotiate because it's one single payer and we're going to be able to do all. And I just, I don't know, I'm skeptical of that. I don't think that's going, I mean, given the, given the amount of corruption in DC, I just, I, I think it's going to be yet another way. It's got, to be honest with you, I think it's going to be comparable, if not more so than the military industrial complex. Like, well, I, it, you, you, yes. And the left doesn't pay atten enough attention to fraud. And the left just wants to just kind of wave it away and just hope that it doesn't happen and say that they'll crack down on it. But when the GI Bill was created, a yeah. whole bunch of for-profit colleges popped up yep. in the 40s and 50s and, and mm -hmm. robbed the hell out of a bunch of returning GIs. Mm -hmm. When when we did you know federal subsidized student loans, the exact same thing happened 50 years later, and all these people got run through these you know fake for-profit colleges. That's you know, that took the loan money and left, left people with all of this debt. Uh, Medicare gets ripped off. You know, Miami's entire economy is, is like people ripping off Medicare. <laughs> that, that and like... You heard it here first. Miami's economy is based on fraud. It is. It, it, it's you, fraud no, I mean, and, and, and yeah, the drug seriously. war and the, and the oligarchs, yeah. like the oligarchs yeah. from South and Central America sheltering their money yeah. that they stole from people there. Yeah, that's, right. That's basically my enemy. A reason I'll never go. I'm never going to that city. So it's fascinating. Yeah, that, I mean, that piece was pretty moving. I, I plan to speak to a man named James P. McCullough. He's a professor emeritus at VCU, but I was basically in his last class. He created the only effective treatment so far for chronic depression. Many people, it's about 30 or 40% with medication and therapy don't relapse. His is 80%. And so he's... He's in his 80s now. So I got to get a hold of that guy before he goes. Mm -hmm. um, kind of like him and Chomsky. 
why the switch from Huffington Post to The Intercept? I mean, The Intercept is known for doing investigative pieces. The Intercept was literally founded on, like I was just saying, on the NSA stories. Right. And so, and from there, the, the Panama Papers, and from there, Glenn took a real target to the Obama drone program and the, the amount of dirty wars that were going on. Jeremy Scahill made a home there, really going after the Obama administration and, their, and, the, and the covert wars that were being launched uh, without congressional authorization. So why the switch from something like Huffington Post to The Intercept? Well, I mean, people might forget that the Huffington Post in the Obama era was the biggest thorn in Obama's side. He, he, he probably came after us you know, multiple times. Define um, that. Uh, so he's, he like in speeches, he would say, you know, if all you do is listen to the Huffington Post, you think that, you know, we're, you know, not doing enough for, you know, for working people that we're, you know, that everything we do is wrong. Um, he, in a, in a, in a, in a talk to a college class, he said that, you know, all that were always, you know, we're so critical of him and so critical of that. If we were around when Lincoln did his emancipation proclamation, we would have said Lincoln sells out slaves because there were counties in West Virginia that weren't covered. It only covered the areas that were in active rebellion. Yeah. Uh, like Louisiana, like Louisiana, like there were significant carve outs to it. So he's like, right. we would have even, you know, they would Huffington Post would have even attacked Lincoln for the Emancipation Proclamation. When we came after Larry Summers, who he tried to put on the Fed chair uh, as Fed chair, he like told this group of Democrats on the Hill, um, House Democrats, he's like, don't listen to the Huffington Post. Like, it, you know, Larry's a good guy. Um, and so like, we, we were like <laughs> the organ of like- It sounds so much like Obama. Like, yeah, we were the organ of like, like <laughs> Obama skepticism. Um, we we once ran this extremely controversial front page splash that was all images of children killed in the uh, drone program. With the, and the headline was Obama's like drone policy. Yeah, no trigger warnings. You know, no. You know, and people are you know c- coming to our site for a lot of like pop culture stuff. And, yeah, that's what Huffington Post is like, usually known for. Right, and they're like, whoa. Uh, we had actually run some of the Snowden documents. Uh, Glenn collaborated with me on a couple of stories, I think before he launched the Intercept. Um, and Jeremy has been a long, long, was a, no, I, I'd known both Glenn and Jeremy um, for a very long time. And also Betsy Reed, the editor. So, I mean, but basically I got, I got thrown out of the Huffington Post, so I had to go somewhere. And so the question was where? So you said you were thrown out of the Huffington Post. You can ex- can you explain that a little bit? Because the way that it's framed is that Huffington Post was downsizing, and you know this, that, and a third, running out of money. Can you explain that? So I had been I had been float, and when Ariana left, I would I had been floated as a potential editor in chief. Um, and after Trump won, I like took my name out of it. I was like, I don't I don't want to be editor in chief. You know, overseeing everything, including like all of our, you know, fashion coverage and stuff. While like Trump is in Washington, like I, I want to stay in Washington. Like this is, if it was going to be Hillary as president, like okay, <laughs> like maybe yeah. that's an interesting thing to do, but not, not with Trump. Um, 
So I withdrew from that and they ended up hiring uh, somebody else. And often the way it, go, it goes in organizations is if yeah. you, know, you, you bring somebody else in, they're going to bring their own, right. their own leadership team in. It was gracious in the sense that I was, I wasn't given any deadline. Like I could, I could kind of leave on my own timeline, own terms. So it wasn't like you're fired, uh, which is good because it's much harder to, as anybody will tell you, and it's much harder to find the work that you want if you are unemployed. Like having a job just makes you much more attractive to right. other employers. It's not fair, but it's it's real. Yeah, so um, you knew Glenn. Uh, Glenn is a, is a figure I was familiar with too for a long time. He was uh, one of the first people who really did, who did some very important civil liberties work on the left, being very antagonistic uh, towards George W. Bush administration and their drone program, and in particular the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Even then he was a critic of the sort of corporate right-wing framing. Um, what the hell happened? You know, this well, he, he, it's, it's interesting because this is a guy who... At a time, and the thing is, I, I have to go back because YouTube used to be a lot more of an open place when it came to long speeches. And I have an entire list of like over 170 videos of leftist speeches. Quite a few of those are, um, are of him. But he, his ideological change over the last few years, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't, he, he is so vociferous in his opposition, or at least was so vociferous in his opposition to Bolsonaro, very vocal before particularly in the case of like let Lula out of jail, the charges are ridiculous. Former president of Brazil who was tossed out. Yeah, and she was impeached or I believe convicted and she's thrown out for over bogus shit that other people, excuse me, well, this is exclusive podcast, over bogus shit that other people had gotten away with. It seems now that he has, which is another thing I want to get to, which is there's a place for getting on right-wing news outlets and actually spreading left thought and ideas, right? and actually combating the crazy. But what is with this move towards Tucker Carlson and the Ben Shapiro's of the world? I don't, I don't, I mean, he's an immensely powerful man, very wealthy. He affords private security, you know, just one of the most noted journalists in the world. And now he's making this turn towards right i just i don't get it why i mean it maybe it's just it's just your speculation i mean it's not a moral judgment of the man it's just it's it's truly bizarre to me having grown up watched him say the things he does having gone on places like breaking the set and just and tom hartman's program and democracy now and then hearing him saying that like oh Tucker Carlson doesn't say racist shit about immigrants it's like <laughs> what it's like there are like 10 minute compilations online of Tucker saying nothing but racist shit about immigrants. I mean, I think he, Glenn's always been, um, Glenn's always had, you know, to say that he was left wing, I think, was imputing onto him what people wanted to see. Like he intimated that. I'm just going to put it out there. I mean, just to, just to push, he intimated that very often i believe at one time he even said he was social he, he was a socialist or at the very least he would be sympathetic sympathetic to those ideas i'm just i'm just putting it out there i mean his his animating motivation for a lot of his politics has always been civil liberties clearly particular first amendment stuff clearly and you know and that's where a lot of you know that's that's obviously why snowden was interested in, 
in him, in him as, as a vessel for, for his disclosures. And there's less purchase on the left now for people whose you know, primary motivation is the primary politics are organized around civil liberties. And so in some sense, you know, the, that element of the left has kind of left him and he, yeah. he basically is, as he has said, he's like blacklisted from MSNBC and CNN. That relationship turned from whatever it was to like deeply toxic to the, you know, to the point right. where like right. beyond politics, it's personal. Right. So they're, they're not having him on anytime soon. Right. Um, he's not doing anything to try to get on. And so if you want, I know what that's like, if you want a cable outlet, the one left was Fox. Um, yeah. And then it becomes a spiral right. where right. he gets attacked for it, he attacks back. The Russia stuff. And then, right. That makes sense. Yeah. I just, I just very sure. I mean, like I, I, I mean, I, 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 as a major left figure, um, I, I with all 300 and, and uh, less than 400 followers of mine. I mean, I, I mean, I've recently been stalked by a private investigator for God knows what reason. But, you know, it's it's very interesting to me to to see the sort of moves that Twitter was making in terms of saying, you know, people who are unaware that they're that they're being taken, they're being recorded or captured can't be posted online. You know, and that and it's interesting. I mean, I, I mean, of course, I would really benefit for that. You know, pe- fucking creeps who follow you around. Right. You, know, you see some car driving behind you consistently. But at the same time, like you're going to get the point where police already in New York City and also around the country are so insistent that no one ever record them. And then we're going to get these takedown notices from cops around the country saying that if you post the the arrest video, or excuse me, if you post the video that's outside of my body cam footage, you know, it's a, you're threatening my physical safety, you're coming after me and all the rest of this nonsense. And it's going to get taken down and we're going to have suppression of that stuff. You know, that's, but that's a real problem for me. I'm not a fan of that because especially coming from my background in Black Lives Matter movement, um, it's extraordinarily important that we take photos and videos of police officers. It's just, it's wild to me. Yeah, and I think you would not say that those are private people. If, if it's a cop out in public, like that's public. But they're public I mean, official. I mean, but they make the argument. I mean, these are the same babies who make the argument that a civilian review board is somehow going to cause them to not be able to do their jobs. It's going to hurt morale or whatever if civilians are able to take over control of stripping police of their powers or punishing them. I mean, it's it's never supposed to make sense, but it's just supposed to go about repressing speech and expression. Um, I did want to get to sort of two more things. Uh, So giving up ground to the right. You often engage with people on the right. I seem constitutionally unable to do so. I just can't, I don't, like, I just, I seriously, seriously. Like I, I, I spent the majority of my time growing up with Rise of the Reactionaries, the F word, just investigating, looking at the right wing, the Tea Party movement, the, the sort of the Christian right movement in the country, the anti-abortion movement, and particularly anti-gay movement, like the family, that organization, it just that push was something of a focus of mine. And to see now, just uh, just to, to try and even engage in a debate, especially when it comes to like vaccine mandates and mass mandates, like I could, 
I could lose my mind having these conversations with people. Like these are people who during like the Spanish flu would be running around saying, no, actually, I don't need to wear a mask and I'm not doing that. There people were those who people. Yes, yes, there were. And Woodrow yeah. Wilson did not treat them kindly. These would be the same people during the bubonic plague saying, no, like, actually, I don't think quarantine's a good idea. <laughs> no, I don't. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it, if you catch it, it'll be fine. I mean, you have people on Fox News saying that catching COVID is the best way to not catch COVID. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I'm I, like, I like, no, I mean, serious, like, yeah, no, that's, and that's like, there. And then I'm reproached, right? And then I'm reproached. I'm called the bully. I'm called the unreasonable one. I'm I'm partisan for not wanting to debate crazy people in the middle of a plague, in the middle of a plague where 750,000 people are dead. Estimates are probably at this point, it's over a million in reality in the United States. Mm-hmm. And we're still having debates about vaccines. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you do it. I'll, I'll tell you how. Um, you have to. You you have to imagine that you're not talking to this person because this person's gone. Like you're not you're not trying to persuade this person. The person you're talking to, or the people you're talking to, is that person's audience. Like that, so that while that person is like locked in on whatever their view is, on whatever the issue is, vaccines or other stuff, typically their audience is not that locked in. Their audience is much more low information, as you'd call it, or you know, their their audience is very likely somebody that's searching around for what they think about the world, and they at this point are inclined to be in the camp of this, you know, whoever this right wing person is, but they're not solidly in that camp. Like a lot of the, a lot of that, a lot of those people's views are, are up in the air, up for grabs. And if all they ever hear is right wing stuff that reinforces what that other person is saying, then they're never going to really question what they're being told. But if they see somebody engaging and, and giving facts and sounding reasonable and polite, then they might say, oh, well, let me let me Google this. Thing. Let me click that link. Let me see what this person said and see if it checks out. And then when they find that the person had been lying about something, then they start to question, like, what else were they lying about? People change their minds and change yeah. their politics a lot throughout their lives and so that's that's the way that i psychically managed to deal with it is to remember whatever clown i'm arguing with i'm not actually trying to persuade them they're they're a goner but i might be able to get through to some of their supporters this is gonna drive me nuts (laughs) drive me nuts it's going to drive me. I mean, talking with people on the right, just about, I mean, Kyle Rittenhouse, just, I mean, this discussion, and I'm not going to mention their name, but this person uh, the other day who was stating like, oh, well, you know, the Arizona State University protests are ridiculous because Kyle Rittenhouse didn't attend Arizona State University. It's like, you know who brought up Arizona State University? Kyle Rittenhouse. <laughs> I was like, you know who made a statement to the court and you know who also made statements in his private life saying that he was going to Arizona State University? Kyle Rittenhouse. 
It's like all you've admitted is that he's still a pathological liar. Like it's just I don't. Anyway, right. anyway, anyway, <laughs> I drive me nuts. I really want to get to to Jesse Waters because we got to uh-huh. talk about that. Dude, we got to talk about that. I remember we DM'd about that. That was the thing where I was just like, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So I saw the video. I'm not going to, I don't want to denigrate you in any way, but it, it sounds sort of like you, uh, it sounds like you had been drinking. It's what it sounds like. Um, and I, and I don't drink. No question. Okay. Yes. And I don't drink uh, for all kinds of good reasons, but <laughs> it sounds like you've been drinking a bit. Jesse Waters, um, apparently there was some sort of uh, tension between him and this journalist, right? Between him and this woman. She had written something about Bill O'Reilly, who he worked for. Back when he was a thing. Right. And he sent Waters to trail her personally and put a camera in her face and tracked her like two or three hours into, into, into Virginia, like deep into Virginia, and confronted her like on a on a, while she was on vacation and stuck a camera in her face like despite the fact that she had tried to contact you know o'reilly for comment like if o'reilly wanted to comment there was a reasonable way to do it not to not to literally trail someone several hours into virginia and then ambush them on the street some tiny town in the middle of nowhere right um so that's what he did and that's what i was and she was like, oh, look, there's that guy that did that. I was like, oh, let's. Uh, right. Let's yep. And that's where the video picks up. Yeah. <laughs> that's where the video picks up. I was like, this and guy. So, she's like, no, 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 not him. This him over there. I had no idea, like, right. what he looked like or who. Like, right. All I knew how, was that he was a jerk who had chased her out into Virginia. Right. So, and how tall are you, Ryan? I'm like six foot. <laughs> okay all right so and so the video basically the it, it for those of you haven't seen it i'll link it in the description but it's online basically the the, the fight doesn't actually take pl- the scuffle the exchange didn't take place on camera because ryan's phone was in jesse waters pocket uh <laughs> i mean just jesse waters at first decided to knock the phone out of your hand mm-hmm. and then on top of that then took the phone and as you were trying to walk away from the situation and someone, I think it was maybe security or someone else had gotten involved and they were just like, you're just like, I'm not walking away without my phone. Right. And Jesse was very insistent that no, in fact, you were. And so then it takes off. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. That is so awesome. I wish we got a picture of that. Like, that's so awesome. Because the thing is, many people are like, oh, Armando, like you get really angry and like, you know, sometimes you clap your hands a lot. I'm like, let me tell you something. As an adult, I have not been engaged in a physical fight yet. So I don't want to hear that Armando's aggressive or that Armando's mean. Okay. It's I have not embarrassing em- you to be in a fight as a grown up. I don't think that's embarrassing. I think it's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Are you kidding me? Like it's it's embarrassing. I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. I mean, general, for that, yeah. for that reason, for that reason, like especially, yeah. Not only, it, of course, Jesse Waters. I'll say it. Ryan won't. Jesse Waters is an asshole, a misogynistic asshole who says absolutely insane things on Fox and Friends and Fox News, and on top of that, like chases this woman into Virginia, basically with a fucking camera is in her face. And then number three, like, has the the caucasity is what I call it, the caucasity to reach out and slap it out of your hand and then on top of that steal something of yours and be like what are you going to do about it look 
Right, yeah. Chef Armando does not encourage or endorse violence at any point or any time. However, no, that yeah, you deserve to get decked. You deserve an ass whooping. Let's 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 get it. He was like, maybe I'll mail it to you. Exactly. (laughs) I think that he wanted to delete the video because yep, he had admitted on the video that O'Reilly had sent him. Yep. Said go get her. Yep. Uh Huh? He was like, oh wait, I should not have admitted that. Cowards. Cowards. And the thing is, he just looks like one of those men in general who just gets away with whatever it is that he wants. And he's used to getting away with what he wants because he looks like that kind of guy. Yeah. S- says the most obscene things. I mean, you should just, you really should hear the things that that man says. Aaron Coleman is a man that you covered who's recently gotten back into the news. And I remember mm-hmm. you had made a sort of defensive statement about him. Um, just, you know, when we were first learning about some of the things that he had done, and if those of you who aren't familiar, Aaron Coleman is a man who lives out in Kansas, who represents um, a district as a Democrat in the Kansas State House. He was, he defeated an incumbent. He's, he at the time, I believe was like 19 years old. He was very young and he ran on a platform of defunding the police and doing quite a few other things and won. And here recently he has been arrested for DUI and then on top of that was arrested for domestic violence and from what you had covered it doesn't seem like that was the first time that he had done something like that or been accused of something like that is that right yeah that's right and I still catch hell every now and then from um people on Twitter over this and it's a very quick way for people to catch a block or a mute um (laughs) because I don't regret at all like the way that uh, I approached the situation, the the first thing that I saw about this was that right. at at the age of twelve, right. this guy had done something pretty horrific, some revenge porn, right. um, blackmail, yeah, and gross, terrible, really gross and, stuff. And I said, look, he, he's twelve years old. We're going to judge him for that now. Like he's 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 grown up now. And so my argument the entire time was people can change like you cannot hold against somebody what they did as a 12 year old other people said well if if he did that stuff at 12 and then it it came out soon later like he had done some stuff at 14 also maybe a bomb threat i think or something at 14 yeah and he's only 19 at this point so you're like look at that point you're like look he's might he's probably still that dude like okay that's fine that to say probably but that's not that's not how, that's not how journalism goes first of all right. second of all that's not how we ought to live our lives like you you need to explore the question before you you judge somebody um as an adult so the question is what has this person done as an adult and and i ask people you know if anybody has anything on this let me know and somebody reached out and they're like my friend was you know assaulted by him fairly recently and so i got that friend to put me in touch with her and uh, i got she agreed to go on the record uh she yeah. shared she shared like airbnb uh, records that mm-hmm. she still had to show that like because like there's a lot of there's a lot that goes into me too reporting behind the scenes that people don't understand like the rolling stone thing that blew up like they didn't do the basics right they didn't and the, the, the fraternity was able to say, the night you said there was a party right. where you're alleging that we raped this, this woman in your article, there was no party that night. Right. Okay, and I remember- Facebook, Here's the Facebook I, photos to prove it. There was no party. So you have- I remember Sagar like, and Jenny ran off with that. I just, I, yeah. 
that was one of the first things that just made me yeah. <laughs> it's just it's just like <laughs> and so she's like look here's the um you know here's the airbnb receipt that shows that we were where i said we were and she said here's the text messages that we exchanged where it, in one of them available he, in in the article guys yeah one of them he even you know he doesn't completely he basically it's yeah. very clear what happened exactly it's very clear Precisely. i talked to her and also talked to her friend um, who remembered hearing she didn't want to go on the record but she was able to be a, a background source who said if she told me about it like immediately afterwards so like and then i published that story that's the first um article that said that no as an adult he was abusive uh when people are like well uh, she had already made the claim on facebook so who cares that you reported that story like that's not how it works like uh, uh, somebody saying something on facebook is not it's not me too journalism right that's not it's not gonna because anybody can say anything on facebook right but thank god takes, right it takes reporting to like back it up and so anyway guy the kid the, as a kid like the the abuse yeah. you know he suffered all kinds of abuse locked in a closet for years at, at school um like clearly a, just a tortured horrific childhood and sometimes people come out of that as tortured people like the the you know the the most you know anybody who Anybody who is a, in a, a domestic abuser, for instance, like the chances that they were abused as a child is extremely high. Yeah. Does that mean that it excuses domestic violence? Of course not. But it's like, that's, that's the reality. But uh, at the same time, not everybody who's abused and has a whole horrible childhood turns themselves into some type of monstrous adult. They, people, have, people have the capacity to grow and evolve to not be an asshole i think it's incredible because you know aaron coleman i mean i i wouldn't say sympathize but i mean i was a victim of abuse also as a kid like i was i was beaten pretty horrifically like i had bruises i had scars like i i was threatened terrified i wasn't locked in a closet but i was stayed like i was quarantined to my room like 24 hours a day for extended periods of time not like oh you're grounded you did something stupid like no like you're you're borderline like being incarcerated yeah, messes you up it really does it, it it fucks with your mind and it makes you it just it gives you an extraordinary sense of rage um that can be quite difficult to to manage and i i use a lot of that anger to um to lose a lot of weight because i ate also in order to deal with that pain so i was like 194 pounds five foot six in like ninth grade mm. and so like i i just used it like like coal just to like burn me through that but at the end of the day you really have to just realize that with that rage there's an anger there's really no other way out except you're just going to be left with the you're not going to change anything you're just going to be left with what you did in that rage and anger mm -hmm. the responsibility for it. and then number two with the knowledge that you're still angry and nothing changed you're just right. still pissed and so yeah that's that's really awful right. Right, right. So right. Bauman is an actual member of the DSA. He was right. endorsed by DSA, ran as DSA. And the DSA um, has a very clear stance on Palestine and support of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against the right-wing government of Israel. Jamal Bauman chose to be a part of the DSA, 
ran as a part of the DSA, won in large part due to the DSA in New York, and he knew what their stance was. And it seems that the DSA, that organization, that branch of the DSA tried to reach out to Bauman on several occasions, tried to talk to him in his campaign about, hey, we see over the course of months, if not up to a year, we see what you're doing. We want you to stop. J Street was their red line. And they're just like, all right, we need to start getting rid of him. You're not going to run in our party supporting, or at the very least being seen as sympathetic to the settler colonial state of Israel. So, I mean, I, and I just want to make something clear for me personally, my first animating issue in politics, my, my, my radicalizing moment was watching Anderson Cooper stand in front of a building that was intact, supposedly bombed out, talking about how Israeli citizens are under such threat under the Iron Dome that Barack Obama had given them. And meanwhile, I'm watching on the Real News Network with Paul Jay, like literal just bombs just careening into apartment blocks. Just uh, why not, right? To the most densely populated area in the world and the Gaza Strip, just why not? Just let's, let's just drop a Moab on a school. It's just, I, I was irate. I was incandescent at the idea that that was possible. And I, that was my first animating issue. And to this day, I will never equivocate my support for Palestinians or my condemnation of the racist ethno state that is Israel. Like Gaza is an open air prison, a torture chamber. The West Bank is... I mean, it makes South Africa, you know, look like I mean, it looks like South yeah. Africa integrated. It's like yeah. it's it's insane. But yeah, so I mean, you're because you did make public comments on that. I, I just wanted the to thing, get your reaction the, the, to that. The thing that that got my attention was, and it turns out that this was added as a red line later. It was uh, the D, the BDS working group under DSA had said that you know the the they had crossed the red line by meeting with J Street U, which is like a you know college chapter of, of J Street. That came after that came after a meeting that they'd had. And they added, and they're like, oh, and you also must cancel this meeting that you have coming up. Uh, and I think trying to force a politician to cancel a meeting with J Street U goes far beyond what DSA, what the strength and capacity that DSA, DSA has, and basically. Is just virtue signaling to shut down, and, and and shuts down any effort to actually advance the cause of of justice for Palestine and for Palestinians. And one of the people that, that seems to agree with that is BDS, by the way. So yesterday, like they put out a statement yeah. that said reconciling principles with strategic effectiveness in a context sensitive way is a key factor behind the BDS movement's growing impact worldwide. Context sensitive is, is key there. And so this is from right. BDS because BDS's right. interest is not in proving to other people that they have the right politics on Palestine. Their interest is in freeing Palestine. Right. And so therefore they, they care about accomplishing their agenda and something that sets their agenda back you know, uh, is something that they're opposed right. to. They say, yeah, I mean, like this applies to holding elected officials accountable in the most ethical, strategic, and context-sensitive way. Reconciling principles with strategic effectiveness is a key factor behind the BDS movement's growing impact worldwide. And that, that you know, they posted that yesterday at the same time that DSA National, you know, uh, committee said that they would not be uh, 
uh, booting Jamal Bowman out of DSA. The other thing to think, consider here uh, on my podcast, Deconstructed, when I interviewed him about this, he pointed out that you know when he endorsed uh, Betty McCollum's you know very good bill that the BDS movement is supportive of, he didn't get a single call saying like "good for you, good job." Uh, right. When he when he opposed a couple, when he you know took some bad votes, he, he got no calls from DSA types saying we don't like this. And all of the action in his district was on the other side. Right. That doesn't excuse or forgive taking the right. position. But DSA can't, on the one hand, do no work on the ground. Right. And then complain later that the person didn't do the right thing. Right. I mean, go ahead and do that. You can, like you're free to you know, you're free to do that, but right. that's not going to accomplish your agenda. Right. And BDS itself, the BDS movement itself, kind of recognizes that. So. It's not to excuse uh, the bad vote, you know, the bad votes. I personally think that, you know, BDS doesn't want people going on the J Street trip uh, to, you know, to Israel. I think they're wrong about that. I think that the more people go on that trip, the more people, members yeah. of Congress go on that trip, the more yeah. come, they should not go on the APAC trip because that's pure propaganda. But J right. Street, they, they take you to some right. of the centers of oppression and show you the consequences of, of, of the occupation and what Palestinians are, are living under. And without seeing it firsthand, it's hard to understand like, the gravity yeah. and, the, and the immorality of it. So the more people who see that, I think, I think the better. Um, but that's, yeah. I mean, that, that itself is a tactical question that people can agree or disagree on. But, and also I think, I think DSA needs to recognize the fact that they are struggling with the black working class. That you know, Bernie did not do well with the black working class. You know, if you're going to be a national left-wing movement, yeah, need the black working class just from a moral perspective. Yeah. Must set aside the obvious strategic imperatives. Right. And that is part of the, I think, the uh, context, the context sensitive way that 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 this should be viewed. Like Really, you're gonna like this. You're gonna throw Jamal Bowman out over this, <laughs> right? Um, in, in New York City, yeah, right? right. This, this this is a black DSA candidate, and your idea is right, right? Yeah, uh, and who unseated the yeah. most powerful hawk in Washington, chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Elliot Engel, yeah, and, and you know DMFI. Democratic majority of Israel spent two plus million dollars trying to beat him. Hillary Clinton endorsed. Hillary, Hillary Clinton endorsed Elliot Engel. Yeah. The, the kiss of death is what that is. So yeah, it was uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you won't catch me taking money from from Israeli lobby. Um, I got no sympathy for that side of the aisle. None at all. That place is like you can't even marry someone. I mean, it's just and it's, it's, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. Loving v. Virginia. Loving v. Virginia. Anyway, so it was incredible talking to you, Ryan Grimm, DC Bureau Chief of The Intercept, an accomplished journalist, Pulitzer Prize winner, prize winning fighter is, is what I'll call him, Ryan Grimm. Uh, is there a place we can find you uh, online? Because you know, everyone likes Twitter. to follow. Twitter, Ryan Grimm, my, Twitter. My and, favorite uh, website in the world. Be constructed as the podcast to subscribe to. Awesome.
Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was really awesome talking to Ryan. Um, he's a really level-headed guy, very calm. He can stay calm around right-wingers. <laughs> I can't do that. Um, he's a better man than I am, for sure, in that regard. He's a really cool guy. I recommend you go follow him. Um, I'm really grateful that he had time to actually sit down and speak with me about the issues that we find ourselves in somewhat disagreement, but at the same time, uh, just sort of a level-headed, interesting discussion about who he is and one of journalism's most important voices uh, and his background story. I think it's really important that we got to know that, and I'm really glad he had the time to sit down and talk to me about it. In other news, if you guys would like to continue to see more of the podcast, we have got politicians. We've got Kendall Martinez Wright from Missouri, the 5th District, a candidate, a, a trans person running in Missouri, and that's incredibly important for everyone in the LGBT community, for humanity as a whole, that we have representation of all of us within government. And I think their voice is incredibly important and I definitely will be having their voice on the podcast this month. We'll also be doing an interview with a indie game developer. We'll also be doing an interview with Vander Pulaski. And if you don't know who he is, I would encourage you to Google him. <laughs> If you're over 18, <laughs> at the same time, uh, yeah, if you would like to see more of this kind of stuff, I really do need you guys' help. Um, I can't do this alone. Venmo, Cash App, PayPal, any of that, you can remain anonymous. I don't have to put your name out there. It doesn't have to be $20. It doesn't have to be $10. It can be $5, a dollar. Um, but I need some way to be able to actually continue this work forward into the new year. And so along with a few other accounts, including Ryan, Organizer Memes, and a few other people, um, I'll be raising money throughout the end of the year. So I really appreciate your support and love. I see you all in the views. I can't wait to talk about the plans for what we're doing forward in the next five-week plan. That will likely be coming on Monday or Tuesday. Um, I generally like to give the Apple Podcast Analytics time to catch up. They say it can take up to 72 hours, and so sometimes they fluctuate. So we shall see how this goes. <laughs>